You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome into the inaugural edition of the MILB.com, the show before the show podcast. My name is Tyler Mon alongside Jake Siner. Not really alongside, we're like 1,800 miles apart, but hi, Jake. Hey, Tyler. What's going on, man? It's, uh, it is good to be here, I'm trying this podcast thing for the first time. You're you're a little more of a veteran on this, I know, so I'm going to lean on you to guide us through this experience, but yeah, very excited. Nobody listens, nobody listens to mine anyway. Uh, <laughs> but no, we're, uh, this is exciting. You and I It was the show before night. the show before the show. <laughs> the show before the show before the show. That was what I'm going to rebrand mine and just call it that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this is uh, this is going to be fun. We're uh, you and I emailed last night. We were talking about all kinds of ideas for this. It's, and we both said, like, it's about time We're we were kind of surprised that we hadn't delved into one of these yet. But uh, we're excited to be here. It's the first MILB.com podcast. The show before the show is the name of the show. It's a pun. Get it. The show Major League Baseball. I'm Tyler Mon. He's Jake Siner. Jake, how's things in New York? What's uh, what's going on? What are we all about with this show before the show? Well, we thought this would be a good chance. We uh, At the site, we think we do a lot of, of work covering game stories and things that happen. And one thing we've been looking to do more is being able to, to delve into uh, some of the, the finer points of player development and, and evaluation, some things that I know there's certainly a, a pretty rabid hunger for among minor league baseball fans. Um, we get pretty good access to, to coaches and players and things. And one thing that's always fun is talking to those guys about how do you get better if you're an 18-year-old catcher and you just started playing there for the first time? Or how do you learn to throw a curveball when you never throw one before? Things like that. So I'm really hoping this can be a good place for that on top of just obviously talking about minor league news and uh, all the, the hot topics that, that uh, you know, fans are, certainly have on their mind. And we, you know, we want to interact with whoever's tuned into this podcast too. So we'll we'll take your questions and stuff. I'm sure as the show goes along, and we'll uh, we'll try to get you a little bit more behind the scenes look at minor league baseball than maybe you might get elsewhere. Jake, tell us kind of about uh, what you have done, what your track has been career wise to get you to, to milb.com at this glamorous show that you have to talk to me for like a half hour every week with. I have I have earned the right to talk to you. <laughs> I, uh... Uh, I graduated college in 2011. I went to BU and I worked for the Boston Globe for a little bit. And then I moved to Atlanta and interned with the, the Atlanta Braves and their PR department for a summer. Um, that was kind of my first time really being around baseball. I did like high school baseball in Boston, but that was the first time uh, being around a team and getting to talk to baseball people and really enjoyed that. Um, after that, I did a few months with the Associated Press before. A uh, job opened up up here and, and was really excited to move to New York and, and cover minor league baseball. I've been uh, following the prospect, uh, I don't know if it's a full revolution, but certainly uh, in the days since Baseball America started, there's a lot more fans and a bigger fan base for it. I was a big fan of, of what was going on at Baseball Prospectus at the time with Kevin Goldstein. I listened to their podcast. Um, so came in being a big fan and have... Uh, you know, like to think I've, I've come to learn a, a few things about minor league baseball, and this is my, again, my third season here. So. I feel old because you graduated 2011 from college, and I was already three years into minor league baseball by then, which makes me feel so old, Jake. <laughs> so old. You're not that old. <laughs> you know, whatever. That's fine. I got the hairline for it. Um, yeah, no, Jake's you know got the full reporting background. I was actually a radio guy uh, in the minors for four seasons. I worked for the Myrtle Beach Pelicans for three years, the Altoona Curve for a year. Uh, and, yeah, I, before that I was working in sports radio in Denver, which is actually where I'm based, which is why we're so far apart from each other recording a podcast. Uh, and then I started with MILB.com last year, um, actually like a year and two weeks ago or so. And uh, – it's been a ton of fun. I mean, it was a lot of fun being a radio guy and riding around on the buses and doing all that. But getting to, you know, Jake, as you know, you were in Florida last week, which is something we're going to talk about here in a few minutes. And I was in Arizona and getting to go down and hop into any clubhouse you want and talk to whatever prospect you want and, and really delve into the entire game of baseball is a lot of fun. And that's something that I think we're going to have a lot of fun with here, too, is, you know, something that you mentioned in an email to me last night. Sometimes you're on a phone with a guy and you want to ask, like, so how do you develop this? What do you do for this? When this situation pops up, what, how do you tackle that? And, you know, in a post-game phone interview in July, it doesn't really give you the opportunity to do that a lot. But we're going to do that on the podcast, and uh, we're going to have a lot of fun with it. 
I am very, I'm very excited to have a radio uh, veteran alongside me. <laughs> not a good one, just someone who's been there. Uh, not a talented Oh, one. don't You got stuck you. with the, you know, just the experience or something. <laughs> All right, the first of our many, we hope, recurring segments coming up on uh, episode number one of MILB.com's The Show Before the Show, Three Strikes. Three Strikes is a segment where we're going to talk fast about three topics in the world of minor league baseball. And we're going to start with obviously the biggest news of the week this week, which is it had been long discussed. It had been long rumored and it happened this week. Chris Bryant, Chicago Cubs top prospect is headed to minor league camp. The number two prospect, according to MLB.com and all of minor league baseball. Uh, and there has been so much discussion as to Chris Bryant service time, etc. but the Cubs made the move. That's finally done. Uh, Jake, what are some of your thoughts on the whole Chris Bryant situation? And it looks like now he is almost for certain going to open up at AAA Iowa. Yeah, I mean, the the first thing that, I mean, there's, I think, some disappointment with, with the Cubs just in not getting a guy who was clearly the best third baseman in the system there for opening day. But just looking at the way the CBA is structured, the, the rules in place, um, it just doesn't make any sense to, to hurry a guy. It's only going to take two weeks or so in the minor leagues. If they keep him there, they get him for an entire extra season. Um, just doesn't make any sense for them. It's the right thing for them to do. Um, I get that, that fans certainly want to see him on opening day uh, on the minor league side. I think we're pretty excited to get a couple weeks to just see what he can do back at Iowa. I'm sure the people in Iowa are excited. I think the, they're starting on the road, but I think he'll probably get at least a few home games in there before he gets promoted. Um, but I, I, certainly it's not surprising. I get why it's frustrating. I think it's something probably in the next CBA that I have to imagine will be addressed. But uh, at this point, just nothing, nothing surprising about that. I believe it was the front page story on the Des Moines Register today. It was either the front page story or it was like the back page story. Uh, and one of their front stories on the website right now is will is sending Bryant to the minors a good thing. It's going to be a heck of a good thing for the Iowa Cubs because they get to not only watch Chris Bryant, but they're going to get to watch Javier Baez too. Uh, I think the one thing that the Cubs gain from this Maybe it's something they came up with in order to say, no, he needs a couple weeks in the minors, and we got to get him working on some things. But they've tried him in left field, obviously. They've tried him in the outfield. We know he can play a little bit of first base. They're sort of diversifying what Chris Bryant's going to be able to do. And especially with his size, I interviewed him last week in Mesa, and I felt like a four-year-old child holding a microphone up to him because he's a beast. You know, I think there's some concerns if he's going to be able to stick at first, at third base because of his size, but at least they're giving him options now. So I think that's one thing that Cubs fans probably aren't thrilled with because they're not going to get to see him at Wrigley at opening day. But Chris Bryant is not going to suffer from two weeks, two and a half weeks in AAA. And once he gets to the major leagues, by the time September comes around, I don't think anybody's going to remember he started this year in Iowa anyway. Yeah, and I think that's interesting. You mentioned the uh, positional diversity. That seems like it's it's something the Cubs are doing more and more of with their their top prospects. Um, you see guys that can, I mean, Arismendi Alcantara is, is a pretty good example of that. Baez is bouncing around the infield. And, and it's interesting just thinking about, I mean, you, you think about Theo Epstein with the Red Sox when he built up that first team. He was kind of stealing the money ball ideas from Billy Bean. You're not stealing, but certainly a lot of those same ideas, the on-base percentage and things. Something we've seen Oakland have a lot of success with recently is, is that positional diversity and being able to establish depth by just having guys that can play all of those different positions. seems like the Cubs are, are going in a similar path there and doing it maybe a little more quietly. I haven't seen that get a, a lot of attention, but that's been... An interesting thing to watch them establish in the minor league level as they're bringing these guys along. It's sort of interesting because he's the number two ranked prospect in baseball, according to MLB.com. There was some news with the number one ranked prospect in baseball, according to MLB.com. Uh, Byron Buxton, obviously, he's shifted back to minor league camp recently as well. And number three this week, Jake, fire away with strike two. <laughs> <laughs> this week, Carlos Correa also ticketed back to the minor leagues. This one a little bit less surprising than Chris Bryant's demotion and, and certainly uh, anticipated. I think Astros fans are certainly eager to get Carlos in in the major league team in uh, in the majors. But uh, no surprise, Carlos Correa heading to Double A. It'll be his first uh, first extended look there. He was uh, probably going to head up there at midseason last year, and then had the the injury uh, with with Lancaster. Um, headed to Double A. I imagine he'll probably get a, a good amount of time there. Um, I'm curious how how long you think he'll he'll last at Double A and what his timeline is going to look like, just because he is a guy who has been so dominant in the lower levels. You hear so many good things about his makeup. Uh, just kind of what you think that path's going to look like. Well, like that's an 
question. I, I think that's a great question because what you see in Correa is not only an advanced approach on the field, but like you said, I mean, character-wise and mentality-wise, he's so smart. He seems so with it uh, just in, in terms of the presence that he has in the clubhouse on the field. So I think with that, the Astros are probably going to be fine to push him quickly. If he goes through April and May and is really tearing it up in the Texas League, I would not be surprised to see him by June or certainly by July make the jump to AAA. Uh, what's going to be interesting is seeing if he at all struggles to get back to full game speed on the day-to-day rigors of a minor league schedule because he hasn't really played since the middle of last summer. He played in 62 games, suffered the fractured fibula while he was with uh, Class A Advanced Lancaster in the California League, and he was great so far this season in spring training. He batted 341, a couple of homers, five runs batted in, great on defense. But, you know, they're big league spring training numbers. Is it the grind of driving around the Texas League and the, the night-to-night work and a minor league schedule? Is that going to at all wear on him as he works back into game shape? But if everything goes according to plan, it really wouldn't surprise me to see Correa jump up by the end of May or, or into the first couple of weeks of June. Yeah, and I'm interested to see when, when that major league debut comes. I think it's going to be – I mean, it's obviously dependent on what uh, Carlos does in A. But it's, it's also very dependent on what's going on with that major league team. They've set themselves up with acquiring Jed Lowry over the offseason where they can get Carlos up there. They can move Jed to, to third base or probably won't move him to second base unless something happens with Latuve. But they have Lowry has that positional flexibility where, where Correa can step in at shortstop. And I really would not be surprised just based on knowing what the Astros think about Correa and his makeup and, and just sort of knowing the, the way that they have uh, promoted guys in the past and things. I wouldn't be surprised if the Astros, if they do end up in contention, and I'm not so sure that's going to happen this year, but if that does happen, if Carlos doesn't get that midseason jump, otherwise I think probably a September look is is the best-case scenario. But if, if things go well, Carlos is one of those guys who I think could uh, get that call sooner than, than maybe what you might expect. By the way, Jake, I'm just going to throw this out now. I, for like the first probably month of the season, am just going to butcher the affiliations, I'm sure, because I oh, was this man. close to saying AAA Oklahoma City, and it's so weird to say AAA Fresno when you're referring to the Astros now because mm-hmm. everybody's moved around. But So I'm going to give myself a grace period to just be terrible with remembering where everybody is for the first few weeks. And the PCL <laughs> is going to be a, a nightmare. Exactly. Either way, it's the PCL. We'll just refer to it generically as that. Uh, <laughs> strike three here in our first segment of Three Strikes. Pat Connaughton of the Notre Dame Fighting Irish said this week that he may not be reporting to the Baltimore Orioles this summer. College basketball player, Notre Dame knocked out of the NCAA tournament in a fantastic game in the Elite Eight uh, against Kentucky. But Connaughton, who was drafted by the Orioles in the fourth round, fourth round last year, signed uh, quickly thereafter, may not report this year to play baseball over the summer. Jake, you actually saw him in high school a little bit. Uh, tell me some of your thoughts about Pat Connaughton and his road, maybe going, maybe not going to play some minor league ball this year. Yeah, I think it's it's really surprising. I was doing just covering high school sports when he was coming up in Boston, so I got to see him pitch a little bit and play a little bit of basketball. Um, but it's so I've, I've had an eye on him and kind of been familiar with his his path coming, you know, just through the through the college ranks and, and playing baseball. Um, it was interesting to see what was going to happen. I really thought um, when he signed with Baltimore last year, he was a fourth round pick, and they gave him a little over four hundred thousand um, dollars. I really thought at that point he was committed to baseball, and I think he probably did too. I think. He has surprised some people just with the – I think he's been maybe surprised. I haven't talked to him, but just based on things I read, media reports, um, it's been a little surprising that he's gotten as much NBA draft buzz as he's picked up. Um, it sounds like he, he told WEI up in Boston that um, he's been talking to, to teams, presumably NBA teams, um, and thinks there's there's a legitimate chance that he could uh, turn out an NBA career, which just speaks to his absurd athleticism because he obviously could, could turn out a baseball career if he wants to too. Um, I talked to Brian Graham, the, the Orioles farm director, while I was down in, in Florida, um, and he said that he was keeping up with Pat throughout the basketball season. He had we, I talked to him two weeks ago, and he said he had talked to, to Pat the week before, um, and, and Brian said essentially that he was fully expecting Pat to, um, to be an Oriole long-term. I went back and looked at the quotes, and I realized he didn't totally commit to this summer, um, but I, I presumed he meant this summer. I'm not sure if he's surprised by that or not, and I saw... Um, in different reports that the Orioles are, are going to think they were set to talk to Pat a little more today and figure out exactly what his his plan is. But I, I was surprised that he's, uh, I think it speaks to, to his athleticism and, and the amount of buzz that he must be getting from the NBA. Um, makes you think that maybe he would prefer to, to turn out a, a basketball career because I don't think he's going to be a, 
a lottery pick necessarily. It sounds like he'd be more of a late first round, second round pick, um, which you know, basketball is very different than baseball in that regard. Um, but he, he's a legitimate baseball prospect and a guy who, uh, once he commits to baseball full time, you'd expect to, to take off and really uh, compete for, for a major league job within the next few years. Um, so I was, I was surprised, just, just given the fact that he, he signed with Baltimore and seemed very committed. Um, that's, that's kind of my biggest takeaway. One thing to keep in mind with this, too, uh, obviously Notre Dame has had some experience with two-sport athletes in recent years, and Connaughton has talked to former Irish football player Jeff Samarja, obviously now one of the, the White Sox big acquisitions over the off-seasons. Uh, Samarja's brother is yep. Connaughton's agent in baseball, and obviously Samarja picked a very, very smart career with what he's been able to do in baseball. So that's just something to keep an eye on. It doesn't necessarily mean Connaughton's going to go the baseball route, but it's obviously something to keep an eye on that he's been talking with somebody and with somebody's family who's had a whole lot of success on the baseball side of things. That wraps up our first edition of Three Strikes here on the MILB.com show before the show podcast. We're going to talk a little spring training next. <laughs> Jake and I had the very difficult and distinct honor of leaving cold places and going to warm places for our jobs over the last couple of weeks. Uh, I traveled to take in some spring training action. Jake headed from New York to Florida. I headed from Denver to Phoenix, and uh, it was awesome. It was the first time for me that I had been to spring training since I started working in baseball and the first time since I was like in college, which is like eight years ago, so everything's different. But, Jake, I know you were down there last year, down there again this year for a couple of weeks. How was uh, the Grapefruit League this time around? It was it was good. It was much easier going back for a second time and having some idea of, of what to expect. Um, I did want to ask just sort of about Arizona. Cause I think Arizona and Florida are probably very different uh, experiences, especially if you're trying to, to head to the backfields and see the, the minor league action. It's different if you're interested in the major league teams too, but just because it's so much more spaced out. Um, it, it was a pretty long drive. I did five uh, stops. I went to Sarasota for the Orioles, Bradenton for the Pirates, uh, Port Charlotte for the Rays, and then I was in centered in, in Fort Myers, so I saw a lot of the Red Sox and the Twins. Um, and it was a lot of work just to get to see five places, which I think is very different probably than what you had in Arizona, where everything, from what I understand, is pretty centrally located. Um, but the baseball itself was is great. There's nothing I can recommend more for uh, minor league baseball fans or fans interested in um, you know, players who aren't necessarily just at the major league level, the, the backfields is, is a really cool place to um, get access to players. If you're interested in, in autographs and those kind of things, uh, guys are, are very willing to do that. It's also just, I mean, for, for me, it's a great time to, to just get to be able to sit down and, and chat with guys when they're in a more relaxed in, environment that's um, not, you know, gearing up for a regular season game. So before the games, it's easier to, to get interviews and get people when they're in a good mood. Um, you know, the weather obviously was just fantastic and um, yeah, I think that kind of uh, sums up the Florida experience. I do want to hear just like what it's like in Arizona, where I think you can you can see a couple of affiliates just in, in the same day, even or a couple of different organizations. Um, they're all so close. Yeah, that is really the nice thing about Phoenix. Uh, although I wrote on the Mill Perspective blog, you know, kind of some pointers on like what to do if you go to Phoenix, and I accidentally wrote all of the stadiums on the east side of town. I said they're on the west side of town, and vice versa. And people in <laughs> Phoenix did not take that well. But uh, either way, they're all very close. Uh, the ones on the east side of town uh salt river fields a talking stick scottsdale stadium ho cam uh the beautiful new sloan park that the cubs opened up last year uh tempe diablo stadium is relatively central it's probably the closest to like downtown phoenix and then out on the west side some of the older complexes which are really not that old like surprise stadium peoria sports complex camelback ranch is out there the dodgers and the white Sox. that's a beautiful place uh in goodyear ballpark and the other centrally somewhat centrally located park is maryvale stadium that's the home of the Brewers. That's actually the only one that I haven't been to yet, but uh, they're amazing. I mean, I had several days where I hit a day game in the afternoon and a night game that night, and, like, when you do that for, like, your first couple days, then when there are days where there are no night games, like Saturday and Sunday, then you're so bored and you have no idea what to do with yourself. But it was awesome. I mean, the, the parks are amazing, and I think you hit the nail on the head. Guys are so much more relaxed. It's so easy to talk to guys, and they're, they're a little bit more comfortable kind of opening up to you and talking about, you know, goals for the season or what the off season was like or whatever because it just has that laid-back feel to it. Uh, but that's what I really liked about going down to phoenix again is everything is so close it's so easily accessible the only time actually that uh i left phoenix 
and this is super random, and I'm putting together a story about this for uh, for MILB.com. There are now four Mexican League teams that are hosting spring training in Tucson at uh, the former Tucson Electric Park. It's now called Kino Sports Complex, Kino Veterans Memorial Stadium. Four teams from the Mexican League, which is an affiliated AAA league, are hosting their spring training there. They want to expand that in coming seasons. Uh, the games are open to fans. It was That was a lot of fun, but that was the only time I headed down to Tucson, which was vastly different from uh, the first couple times I went down to Phoenix. Uh, for spring training in 2006 and 2007 when there were still three teams in Tucson, the White Sox, the Rockies, and the Diamondbacks back then. Uh, so it's definitely – that's the nice thing about going to the Cactus League is everything is very, very close. Uh, and, it you know, it enables you to go see Chris Bryant and Joey Gallo in the same day if you really wanted to if the schedule worked out, which is, you know, cool and would probably just make you realize the total lack of athleticism that you have, which is what it did for me. And uh, <laughs> so that's, that's always good. What were some of the most impressive guys you saw? You talked to a lot of people down there. Who were some of the guys who impressed you most? The, well, just as far as guys that I saw, uh, one of the cool ones was I was there right after uh, Yon Mankata, the, the announcement that he had signed with the Red Sox. Um, so I got to see him actually for a couple days on the backfield. He wasn't participating in, in games yet, uh, but got to see him taking infield and taking batting practice. Um, just physically for a 19-year-old kid, it's, it's, it's almost hard to believe that he is 19. He is so physically developed, and I'm not trying to, to suggest that he's, he's you know, more than that or start some age gate thing, but just physically you don't see a lot of 19-year-olds who look like that even among, I mean, not among the general population, but not even among baseball players. I mean, I've seen a lot of the other uh, elite prospects at, at 19, your Byron Buxton's and, and some of those guys, and just physically he is, the, the muscle is, you know, the, the leg muscles are kind of what stood out. Is he's, he's got tree trunk legs that are still quick, and, and he's agile, and he's, um, and he's not, I don't know if he's necessarily a burner, but um, you know, so I'm taking infield. He looked very promising at second base. I think it was he hadn't played uh, in really a full year up to that point, and I think it showed at times. There was a couple of balls that kind of bounced off the, the palm of his glove or something, but he also showed some really impressive hands at certain points. I think the the instincts are, are pretty good, and the confidence just he has that sort of uh, that that swagger that jumps off in the backfields. That's that's pretty impressive. Um, and some take some, take some batting practice too, and the the swings from both sides of the plate look pretty good. I think the the contact wasn't as consistent or as loud as uh, maybe what you can expect uh, later in the season, um, just as he's he's working his way back from not playing for a long time. And I think the Red Sox are taking it slow with him, and I think that's the the right way to go. Uh, one guy I did talk to was uh, the Greenville manager, Darren Fenster, is going to be Lincata's first uh, stateside manager. Um, and talked to him a little bit about just transitioning a guy uh, coming from, I mean, I asked him just generally about transitioning some of the Latin guys who are uh, not only new to U.S. baseball, but new to the States in general. There's a, a big transition there, learning the language, learning the culture, learning just how to go and get yourself a meal before the game or, or something like that is, is a big transition. And um, He seemed very confident just in the way that the Red Sox have set up that system. They have coaches that um, obviously speak Spanish, and they have players that are bilingual. One guy who sounds like he's going to be really helpful possibly in that transition is Mauricio Dubon, who's the uh, shortstop at Greenville this year. Uh, or should be, um, and he's actually a Honduran-born uh, player who moved to the U.S. when he was in high school um, just to try to, to get recognized for baseball and was a late-round pick. And um, is an interesting prospect in his own right, but um, I think is going to be pretty important to that transition for, for Mancata, um, just kind of as a go-between because he can speak both languages and um, seems very willing and eager to kind of take on that role. So I thought that was that was one of the more interesting things that I, I saw and heard and um you know, obviously everybody's talking about Yom Mankata these days just because it's interesting when you get a, a new toy to the, the minor league world like that that uh, is kind of coming from somewhere where nobody's seen him. Uh, how about you? Who, uh, who stood out to you? I imagine seeing Bryant and Gallo in person so close together was, uh, was quite a shock to the system. Yeah, those two, I mean, they're, they're unbelievable. And they, like, I'm a normal-sized human being. I'm like 6'1", and standing next to Joey Gallo, I felt like I was in, like, Gulliver's Travels. He's, like, one of the biggest human beings I've ever seen in my entire <laughs> life. He has shoulders that are, like, the size of my desk. Uh, and to talk to those two guys, and especially just to kind of get a feel for where they are mentally, that's what really impressed me about those two. I mean, obviously, you know, you watch them take BP or you see them in games, and the power is unbelievable. And that's what everybody knows about both of those guys. But the way that they were – 
just personality-wise, how relaxed they were, uh, especially Chris Bryant with everything that he had been going through. And I talked to him the day after one of his two homer games, and he just seemed like it was any other day, you know, like woke up and had a bowl of cereal and rolled into the clubhouse. and like, oh, there's Peter Gammons, and he wants to talk to me. And, you know, I'm the focus of the baseball world, but he could not have been more relaxed. And Gallo was the same way. Now, I did catch Gallo on the morning that the Rangers guys were all filling out their brackets, and he took Kentucky, in case anybody's wondering. Uh, but Gallo was kind of the same way. Like, he knows, I think, that his his developmental timetable is different from Bryant's in that he's going to be challenged for longer in the PCL. He's going to go to Round Rock, and, and everybody's obviously concerned about his strikeout rates and all that kind of stuff throughout his career. But he's probably a little bit farther away than what we see from Bryant. But he's of the same mindset that this is the next step for me. I'm going to be in the big league soon, and that's very exciting. And that was what really impressed me about those two guys. Um, on the field, there were a couple of guys who really struck me. Jorge Soler hit a ball as hard as I have ever seen a baseball hit in my entire life. Uh, caught a game at Camelback Ranch one day when they were playing the White Sox, and he destroyed a ball that had the baseball been bigger, I think it would have taken down the wall in left field. It was like that hard hit, just on a line to left. And that was one of three balls that he hit exceedingly hard that day. So he obviously seems to be feeling very good going into the season. He's the Cubs' number three prospect. Uh, I caught uh, a game one night in Peoria where the Mariners are playing, and I know he is no longer a prospect, exceeded his rookie time, but Taiwan Walker looked unbelievable. Uh, and another guy who was very impressive there was Alex Jackson. He's the Mariners' top prospect. Came on as a pinch runner, scored from first on a kind of a bloop ball into the outfield that was turned into an error, and really not many guys would have had any business scoring on, but Alex Jackson scored on it somehow. So he was pretty impressive. Uh, and then I was just walking around the concourse at Peoria Sports Complex and recognized Gabby Guerrero, who was there in street clothes, and thought there's probably only like three nerds in here who would have just recognized Gabby Guerrero in street clothes. <laughs> so I don't know if that's like a cool thing or not. But uh, that kid is – he is a beast too, and he is still pretty young, and you can kind of tell is coming into his own. Didn't get to see him in game action, but uh, but he was impressive. And, you know, that's the neat thing about spring training is you get to see a lot of guys, especially if you're a fan – of the major league club and you want to see a lot of these prospects and don't live near them, you get to see a lot of these guys who you're probably not going to see for the next couple of years or maybe ever, depending on how some of them play. But if you go to Phoenix or if you go to, you know, Orlando or you're driving around the, the grapefruit league, you can see a lot of those guys, which is really cool too. And, uh, and you get to, you know, cheer for guys who are wearing like number 97, which is always fun. <laughs> That's I did want to touch on you mentioned Jackson and the the base running surprising you. There was an interesting nugget. Uh, I just wanted to mention before we we moved on that uh, we ran a Q and A on the the website mylb.com today with Alex Jackson. Uh, Ashley Marshall did that. And one thing that Jackson mentioned in there is he actually used to also be a soccer player, which I thought was interesting for a guy who was that big. Yeah. And, um, I mean, yeah, I gotta imagine that that helps with the footwork and the the quickness and. Um, and keeping him a little quicker than uh, than your average guy who looks like to be a big power hitting right fielder. I thought that was interesting. That's interesting that you you caught that in the game too that he was running pretty well. And again, like freakish athleticism because his best defensive tool is his arm. So it's like, well, he plays right. soccer, he runs well. Oh, and also he has a cannon. Awesome, very cool. Uh, but yeah, he was he was impressive. And you know what? That seems to dovetail us pretty perfectly to our next topic. Look at this. It's episode number one of the show before the show. We already got segues. We're like pros, Jake. Uh, <laughs> Sam Dykstra is going to join us uh, here coming up right now to talk a little uh, Mariners. We're rolling out our prospect primers, obviously. Started National League West on Sunday, American League West. Uh, we're going the entire week running out our prospect primers. And let's talk a little bit with Sam since we're discussing some Mariners, guys. Welcome, Sam. How are you? Hey, Tyler, how's it going? Good to talk to you, man. The uh, the Mariners system, we've heard so much about the pitching for a while because of Taiwan Walker, because of Danny Holson, because of all those guys coming up. And in a, a city where Felix Hernandez headlines everything, you kind of want to talk about pitching. But they have a lot of position players coming up now as well, and they're sort of front-lined by Alex Jackson. But tell us about some of the guys who impressed you in the M system. Yeah, I mean, the big kind of thing right now in the M system is just right-handed power. I mean, it's it starts with DJ Peterson. Um, the guy hit 31 homers last year. Now he's going to be right there, double A this year. Kind of the same player, Patrick Kivlahan, another guy who's capable of hitting 20, 30 homers a year. Um, those are just the guys at the top of the system that stand right out, right at you. And then you go to Jackson, who you know you guys were talking a little bit about before about his arm. Um, but the guy who immediately kind of jumps to find whether it's a, an earned comp yet or not is just kind of Bryce Harper. 
you know, a guy who used to play catcher. Um, he's a bat first type of guy. He's really athletic, got a good arm, and they wanted to move him to the outfield so his bat would play more and they could get squeeze a little more games out of a few more games out of him every year. Um, so yeah, that's you were saying before. You know, it used to be all about pitching, and now you look on down the line. They don't have a pitching prospect until number seven with Edwin Diaz, according to MLB's rankings. Now that's just the way it kind of goes when you graduate prospects and you have Taiwan Walker, James Paxton. You know, no longer technically in the the farm system. Um, so that, that that's the thing to be get be, get excited about now if you're an Evans fan. It's just all that power that's in the pipeline right now. Yeah, one interesting thing about the, the Mariners with all that right-handed power is a lot of it, especially you mentioned Kivlahan and, and Peterson, they're coming up and they're, they're in similar positions uh, just positionally. They're both guys who have played some third base, played some first base, and the Mariners obviously have a pretty good third baseman in trench there, Kyle Seager. How, how do you see maybe that playing out? I'm not sure if you got any indication from the Mariners on what they might do with those guys positionally, but I'm curious just kind of what you think is, is how that's going to unfold with time. Yeah, I mean, if, if, I wonder... Um, how they kind of took it between Peterson and Kibblehan this season, or this offseason, when they heard, you know, Kyle Seager signed a seven-year extension. You know, there's a guy who's at the position that they're, that's their natural position, it's the position they've been playing for a while, and now they know an established all-star guy is going to be there for the next seven seasons. So what, they're, what they've been focusing on is moving Peterson to first. Um, same thing with Kibblehan, getting him time at first base, um, but also the outfield. Um, the talked about a little bit earlier with the Cubs that they're trying to get defensive versatility with a lot of these guys just out of hope and you know trying to add their to their value with the Mariners it's it's more out of necessity you know if they want DJ Peterson's power to play they're going to have to move him to first and right now they don't have an established first baseman I know Logan Morrison is there um, for now but I, I wouldn't say he's exactly the future of the position Peterson's at least more exciting and uh, not as exciting necessarily as Kyle Seager so but you want him getting those at-bats at some time, and I think that's going to be at first. So right now the plan is they're going to get – they're both going to get their reps at, at third. Um, Kivalan's probably going to be in Tacoma. Um, Peterson's probably going to be in Jackson to start. But they are going to try to get – when it comes to Peterson, reps at first, and Kivalan reps at first and the outfield and just get those guys' versatility for when they need it, probably down by the line, maybe by September, maybe next year. Sam, tell us a little bit about Danny Holson. Uh, the the issue kind of concerns you a little bit more when it's a, a shoulder injury, but it seems like, I mean, he's said all spring he feels great. What have the, the Mariners said about him? How do they feel his injury will affect him or will not affect him going forward? Yeah, uh, one of the funny things was, um, you know, talking to Mariners and just what their kind of thoughts are when they – I brought up he scored he threw a scoreless inning you know this this year in the Cactus League and that was his first inning at all since uh, September first, twenty thirteen. You know when it's been that long, um, Jack Mosman, an assistant in the player de- uh, development department there, just said how proud everybody was just to see him out there again. So that's just kind of where they're starting. They just want to see him getting innings and out there and growing confidence and getting back to the guy who was taken second overall back in twenty eleven. I mean they they just want him to get that confidence down first. Um, you know, it's, a, it's obviously a concern. I mean, he's battled shoulder injuries the last couple of years. Um, this isn't anything new. And um, right now, their eye really is more on 2016 than 2015. Right now, they just want to establish a baseline for him, get him a healthy season under his belt, and kind of take it from there. Um, he was officially optioned to AAA Tacoma. Um, that's not necessarily where he's going to start. I know Lloyd McClendon said... We want to start in warm weather, which can mean any number of things. You know, Jackson's in Mississippi. It's a little warmer down there. Maybe it'll start there. Um, and But also Tacoma is starting in El Paso and Albuquerque. So maybe he could be with Tacoma, or maybe they'll hold him in extended spring training. They're, they are still coming up with that plan right now. But, um, yeah, for right now, it's just establishing a baseline, making sure he's healthy for a full season, and then they'll figure out his major league future from there. Yeah, one guy you uh, you wrote about, you tabbed him, the breakout prospect for the system was Jordy Lara. I uh, wanted to ask you to make your case for, for Jordy as a guy who is going to break out maybe more than he already has uh, with the numbers. Yeah, it, that was one of those things where he was the Mariners, um, I think the minor league player of the year last year um, because he hit 337, he hit 26 home runs. Um, so obviously they... They liked him and liked what he did in 2014 to say he's going to break out a little more. 2015, I know, is, you know, it sounds a little crazy, but the re- way I put that is that he's not very highly ranked 
um, within the Mariner system right now. He's two, you know, he's number 16, I think, right now, according to MLB.com. Um, and the reason that is is those big numbers he put up last year were at High Desert, um, which was a Mariners affiliate. Um, now they're moving to Bakersfield. But uh, you know, when you see those big numbers at High Desert, which is a you know just a place where pitching goes to die. I mean, offensive players love playing there. They can put up big numbers. You take it with a massive grain of salt. Um, so the evaluators are kind of looking at it like, well, he did it at High Desert. That's fine. That doesn't necessarily is going to be good. But his other numbers were. Not necessarily just as good, but pretty, pretty good. Um, at Jackson, he had a 286 average, 326 OBP, 492 slugging percentage. And then he moved to the Dominican League where he hit 298 and had an OBP of 441. Small samples, sure, but taken uh, together, um, it kind of showed the capabilities of what he can do, um, particularly taking walks. He's getting better at that. Um, and... You know, if, if he can do that at Jackson and maybe Tacoma this year, then you're going to see him climb into the top 10 of the system. So I'm not saying he's going to break out and become a top 100, 100 prospect and somebody we're all going to be talking about. I'm just saying he's going to break out into somebody who the Mariners are actually going to think is a guy and not just somebody who was good for one year in high desert. He is at Sam Dykstra, M-I-L-B on Twitter. Sam Dykstra, one of our fantastic writers at MILB.com. Uh, Sam, thanks, man. Who else do you have coming up for prospect primers? I have uh, the Braves and I have the Red Sox. Awesome. Uh, Red Sox. You got a fun trio there. Yeah, definitely. Um, You know, getting to write about Jose Peraza and, as Jake was talking about, for Yohan Moncada. Um, You don't get to write about second base prospects too much, so those are definitely (laughs) intriguing names you get to cover in in a week. Go find him on Twitter. He is at Sam Dykstra, M-I-L-B. That's D-Y-K-S-T-R-A, like Lenny, but we don't call him Nails. I don't know. I'm not in the office. Do people call you Nails? No, no. Dustin Bedroya once did, though. <laughs> I'll take that. See? Uh, then that's the only way scored... you need to certify a nickname is cool if Dustin Bedroya called you that. <laughs> yeah. You used to tell people it was uh, related to Lenny, but uh, not so much. In... Not so much in recent years, I guess. <laughs> I haven't seen him in a little while. Yeah. So, Sam, had one of our American League West prospect primers. Uh, I had a couple of our National League West prospect primers. And, Jake, tell us about your trio of primers. Yeah, so the uh, of uh, we're recording this on Tuesday. I think it's going to run on Thursday. So at this point, the only one that will be up was uh, the Pittsburgh Pirates, um, which I got to see some of their guys in in person down in Florida. One guy I actually did not get to see throw was Tyler Glass. Now, but uh, I think there is so much hype surrounding him at this point. You don't necessarily need to to sure. see him to understand that he is a name worth knowing. Um, it's been interesting. Sam actually did a really good feature. Glass now was our uh, Milby Pitcher of the Year last year. Um, talking to Tyler just about uh, the process of uh, he was a, a kid drafted. I think it was a fifth round pick and, and was you know six foot six or something, just tall, lanky, all projection, and the velocity came along and he's, he's hitting the upper nineties and everything. Um, and then then everything kind of followed from that, the command and, and the, the secondary pitches and, and the makeup really. The makeup was always good, but just sort of the, the way he was approaching games and, and some of those things. Uh, one thing I thought was interesting talking to the Pirates is is they've been really methodical in the way they've moved Glass now uh, up to this to this point. He's done a full season at the A level, uh, a full season at Class A Advanced last year, um, and he's really to the point where he might be done moving so methodically. Uh, he got 140 innings last year between uh, pitching at Bradenton and then in the Arizona Fall League, so his innings are, are really up there for a guy who's uh, as young as he is. Um, he's going to head to double A to start the season, but I really think we talked about Correa being a guy who could surprise you with how quickly he moves from from double A before. I think Glass now, especially because the Pirates have a reputation of being pretty uh, deliberate in the way that they bring guys along, I think people might be surprised by how quickly he jumps. I think some Pirates fans are clamoring for him in the majors already. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, but, but I think definitely getting indications that he might be able to move a little quicker. And the Pirates basically said that. I talked to the, the farm director, Larry Broadway, and he said Tyler's put himself in a position where he can move faster now. He could do certainly two levels this year. I think uh, the, the possibility is there that he's in Pittsburgh by by the end of the season. I wouldn't expect it to be a, a May call-up if there's a, a hole in the rotation or something, but uh, could see him in, in the majors by the end of the year, certainly competing for a, a spot uh, in spring training this time next year uh, in that rotation. I don't think that'd be real surprising, obviously, assuming health, as is, is you can never assume with pitching prospects. Um, another guy I actually wrote about, not in the primer, but at a, a blog post over on our, our blog, MILBperspective.com, um, was about Reese McGuire and, and just the process of 
bringing along a, a young receiver, Reese had a, a lot of experience as a high school catcher and had some pretty good coaching. So he came in pretty advanced. But I thought it was interesting talking to Broadway just about uh, how much workload you want to give a guy. We talk a lot about workload with pitchers, but workload with young catchers is an important thing too, especially if you want their bat to be able to develop. If you have a guy and you try to run him out there 100, 120 times behind the plate, it's going to be pretty difficult for him to just sort of maintain the the energy required to go out and, and put the work in in batting practice. And there's obviously a lot that goes along with catching uh, off the field, dealing with pitchers, and um, obviously the physical toll on the body. So talking about just sort of how – uh, the organization wanted to do that. I think he caught 84 games last year, and they expect he'll catch a few more this year, but still might not get to 100. Um, and also just it's an organization where you can see there's an emphasis at the major league level on pitch framing, um, just based on some of the guys they've brought in. Obviously had Russell Martin there for a number of years, um, and, and they're really pleased with the way McGuire's coming in. He actually added some muscle and some strength in the offseason. And one of the things they were talking about that he's able to do because of that is he's actually a better pitch framer because he can hold that ball where he catches it in a, in a, with a little more strength and a little more, you know, it's, it's really just all, all forearm muscle and everything, pinching that ball right where you want it located, right where it comes in. And that extra strength is actually really helping him in that regard. And they think that as good as he was defensively last year, he could probably take a, another step forward uh, this year just from adding that physicality. Well, and the other thing, too, with the Pirates is Jamison Tyone's coming back. It feels like we haven't seen him in, like, 20 years. He only had Tommy John last April, so it's not like he's been out of action for that long, but he was kind of Tyler Glasnow before Glasnow was, even, with how successful he was, and another Tommy John guy, which is a topic for a different show. But Pirates still have some really intriguing pieces coming up. They're going to be fun to watch. Um, I got a chance to talk to uh, Diamondbacks and Rockies guys for two of my three stories. I'll have the Royals coming up later on this week. Uh, that's actually going to run tomorrow, which is Wednesday. This is for recording on Tuesday. And uh, the Diamondbacks obviously are, well, really both of these teams are in new positions because they've got a restructured front office on one side. The Rockies promoted Jeff Breidich after Dan O'Dowd and Bill Guyvette left that kind of strange two GM system they had going on. The Diamondbacks cleaned house, obviously, at the end of last year. Dave Stewart's there. So they've got a, a new approach to things. The one guy who I really came away impressed with just uh, in my conversations with people around the Diamondbacks complex and especially director of player development Mike Bell was Tukey Toussaint. The 16th overall pick in last year's draft, one thing that a lot of people probably don't know about Tukey, he didn't even play baseball until he was 11. He was born in Haiti, didn't play baseball until he was 11, and then seven years later is the 16th overall pick in the draft. Again, like athleticism that I could never even dream of. Uh, but Tukey, they're very impressed with Tukey makeup-wise. Bell said they meet with the minor league guys, you know, sometimes 20 to 30 minutes just to, before the season to kind of get to know where guys feel like they are in their development, feel like where they should be. And he said Tukey came in, and a lot of the young guys really don't know how to analyze themselves yet. But he said Tukey blew him away, knew where he wanted to be, knew where he was, the things he had to work on kind of knows he's going to be a major leaguer, but he has some stuff that he has to work on before he gets there. And I thought that was really interesting. Uh, one other guy who was a topic of conversation a lot this off season and coming into spring training is Peter O'Brien, the catching prospect uh, for the Diamondbacks. And I say catching prospect because that appears to be where they're content to let him work. Now, when he was in the Yankee system last year, he moved around. He saw some time at first. He saw some time in the outfield. He's also had some kind of throwing issues. You don't really want to label them the yips, but that's sort of what it had been for the first few weeks of spring training uh and o'brien who was having trouble making routine throws to third base after strikeouts or back to the mound after pitches he said you know last year i played in a bunch of different spots i had to throw from a bunch of different arm angles i'll be fine i'll get it figured out they don't seem to be too concerned about it but bell raved about his talent at the plate uh called him exceptional as an offensive player and praised his leadership skills as well those are the two guys that kind of came out at me uh at the diamondbacks complex i also thought it was interesting um they talked a little bit about Braden shipley and aaron blair who are their number two and number five prospects who basically have moved up the ladder together but i got an interesting quote from bell he said um that the plan hasn't been to move them together he said quote we'll move each guy at their own pace and at the right time so that was interesting even though you know they're climbing somewhat in lockstep they're going to go at their own rate which is a smart thing to do with young pitchers. Uh, on the other side for the Rockies, they need young pitchers. They always need young pitchers. They've got two of them who are on the doorstep right now that people have heard about for a long time, and John Gray and Eddie Butler. Even though they've each had some minor health issues so far in this spring, they are 
more than likely going to be two-fifths of the Rockies rotation by June, I would say. But the guy who I think is really exciting for Rockies fans is Kyle Freeland, uh, left-hander out of Evansville University, who was taken last year with the eighth overall pick. He's actually a Denver native, which is somewhat of a rarity to be a first-round pick, and certainly that high of a first-round pick to come out of the Denver area. Uh, But went off to college, was very successful at Evansville, Some teams were scared away because of some elbow issues that he's had in the past. Uh, The Rockies actually, their team surgeon performed arthroscopic uh, surgery on his elbow when he was in high school, so they felt very confident in his health. But it seems like Freeland can really move quickly. The Rockies raved about his professionalism and just the way that he controls the baseball, where he can throw all of his pitches, he can spot his fastball pretty much anywhere. To me, it seems like Kyle Freeland could make the jump all the way to the big leagues before this season is done. I think he's probably going to start at AA New Britain, but I really feel like they could see him at the major league level before the season's over. And then two guys who the Rockies are very excited about in positions where they've historically struggled to develop prospects are catcher Tom Murphy and uh, second baseman Forrest Wall, who is still very young. Wall's only 19, was drafted out of high school last year, but had a fantastic season in the Pioneer League offensively, which it seems like a Rockies prospect does every year. A few years ago it was David Dahl and Ryan McMahon two years ago and, and Rymel Tapia and Forrest Wall last year. Uh, but Tommy Murphy, the catching prospect, is another cold-weather guy from the University of Buffalo. Last year had a labrum issue, but seems to be or actually a rotator cuff issue uh, seemed to be a hundred percent toward the end of the season. And the Rockies are thrilled with how he looks so far this spring. And he hits. He's got a great arm, great receiving skills, and he hits. And the Rockies have never really developed that good of a major league catcher. They had Chris Iannetta come up through the system. They kind of fell out of love with him. Uh, But those two guys in positions where the Rockies have traditionally struggled seem like they really provide some optimism going forward. Um, And, you know, it's, it's, again, it's interesting to see how these organizations that have been the pirates probably are, are more of an exception to this now, but even five years ago, you could have said this about the pirates. The, the organizations that have struggled seem to be very happy with their plan of development with a lot of their talent right now. Um, and I think Jake, you could probably attest to that with some of the teams that you talk to who maybe haven't had the success that they would have liked at the major league level. They're still thrilled with where their minor league guys are. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's easier to do when you're drafting high. I think the the Twins are, are a pretty good example good of that. The, the guys at the top of that system are all guys, not all guys, but a lot of them are guys that they've taken uh, way up there in the draft. Your, your Buxtons and, and Jose Barrios is first-round picks. Um, Sano is a guy they, they freed up money to get off the Latin market. Um, I mean, I think there's there's but there we've seen teams that have drafted high and have struggled for a long time, I and mean, it took the Pirates, you know, what, 20 years to – figure out how to make that work, how to really churn out talent in the minor league level. And uh, certainly it seems like in the, the Neil Huntington era, they have managed to, uh, to to strike the right balance and find the right formula uh, as far as the way you invest your money, the way that uh, you scout and people that you have scout and run the scouting departments, um, and, and obviously the player development people too. Um, you know, certainly the system is, is set up. I think it used to be a little easier under the old CBA rules to take advantage of those early draft slots, but definitely teams uh, – still able to do that and i think that's uh, one thing baseball definitely has going forward i think that that tends to work out uh, pretty well all right jake i knew we were going to do this we're already like super over in time because we're having way too much fun on the first episode already but we got more coming up this is a segment that i'm really excited for uh throughout the rest of the season i told you in an email yesterday by the end of the season i'm going to bounce so many logo and uniform questions off of benjamin hill that everybody is going to hate me for that but ben's biz we are taking to the radio podcast airwaves it's no longer just ben's biz blog it's now ben's biz i don't know banter whatever we're gonna call it on the show benjamin hill coming up next we're joined now by ben hill ben you want to maybe start by introducing yourself to the listeners tell them a little bit about what you do uh, here at the site yeah Try to sum it up uh, as quickly as I can. It's been a decade-long journey, really. I stumbled into writing game recaps for MILB.com in 2005, and 10 years later, now I'm exploring the minor league baseball landscape um, all over the country, reporting on what the teams do to get the butts in the se- in the seats, so to speak. Um, I love the game of baseball. I love prospects, but really, that's not my interest. That can be everyone else's interest. Uh, I like to know just um, what the teams are doing, the promotions, the mascots, the food, just the entire culture of minor league baseball. So right about that, the business and promotions and everything that's going on. It's a 
teams, you know, 160 teams. So there's always something going on. Usually there's too much going on, and uh, <laughs> I'm drowning in it. Yeah, so with uh, with that, I'm curious what your usual summer looks like, and that can maybe tie into kind of what we brought you on to talk about today is you're dropping your itinerary on Friday on, on the site for what's upcoming this season. I'm curious what the, the season usually looks like for you, kind of what you're doing visiting these parks and, and what goes on there. Yeah, um, as this job of mine has developed, I've kind of uh, created the thesis statement of every minor league baseball team is a reflection of the community in which it operates. Therefore, these 160 teams together are a reflection of America. Therefore, what better way to explore America than through minor league baseball? So that's my general angle every year. And uh, in conjunction with that, I visit about 30 teams each summer and uh, just try to write about you know their culture, the specific culture of every uh, team. So that means visiting the teams and um, you know going on a series of road trips throughout the season, hitting a different geographic region every time. And uh, trying to go into each ballpark without too many expectations, more just try to observe and try to uh, convey the fan experience as much as I can and, and have a lot of fun while doing it because there's always a lot to explore kind of with the, everything that's going on. It's an ecosystem you know, within, within itself. And as far as what you have planned for this year, looking at the itinerary, it looks like you're starting with a, a pretty heavy swing through Florida. Is this the first time you're getting kind of the entire state in there? Um, I went on a similar trip in uh, 2012, I want to say. So at this point, um, I'm trying to visit every minor league baseball stadium um, from year to year and hopefully you know, collect them all at one point. So this will be my second time to Florida. This time through, Bradenton, Tampa, Dunedin, Jupiter, and then the Jackie Robinson game in Vero Beach, you know, where Jackie Robinson had spring training um, you know, as a Brooklyn Dodger in 46, 47, 48. Or not 46, but... Yeah, 47. 47, 48, whatever. Um, but they do a game on April 15th, Jackie Robinson game, at the old uh, Dodger Town Complex, which is now um, run as a separate entity. And who's who's going to be playing in that game? It's uh, two Florida State League teams. I believe it is Brevard County and St. Lucie. Okay. And uh, so every year they play a regular season game, not at their home parks, but they take it to Jackie Robinson's old spring training home. And uh, So have you seen all these parks you're hitting in Florida before? Or any no, of these ones, I've the new ones for never you? been to any of them. And oh, after, okay. After right. the Jackie Robinson game, there's St. Lucie, Brevard County, and then finally up to Jacksonville. And they're going to be in the midst of like a 27-game homestand because uh, they had to take on some of the Biloxi Shuckers home games because their stadium in Biloxi will not be ready yet. So, Yeah, how, how many of the, uh, the ballparks have you hit at this point in your, your quest to catch them all? I feel like every time I count, it's a slightly different answer, <laughs> but let's just say 112. 112, and exactly. how many ballparks do we have now? We have 159. Okay. There so you're... are 160 teams, but we always have to remember that the Jupiter Hammerheads and Palm Beach Cardinals both play in Roger Dean Stadium. <laughs> 160 teams, 159 stadiums. Uh, there's a trivia question for you. Right, and you mentioned uh, Biloxi. That's one that's going to be a little bit later in the season, a visit for you, right? Right. Every I'm doing five different trips this year, and, and every time uh, I put together an itinerary, I kind of like it to have a, a hook, so to speak. So um, in late July into early August, I'm doing a trip um, that will include the Biloxi Shuckers. Um, they are had been the Huntsville Stars, relocating to Biloxi. Got a late start in construction as they were finalizing a lot of the funding details. And as of now, it seems like the stadium will be open in early June. Uh, when I made an itinerary, I wanted to make sure I was visiting uh, Biloxi late in the season in case things didn't go right. But I'm really looking forward to being in Mississippi in late July. <laughs> And uh, as far as what you have for, for the end of the season, it looks like you got a, a New England swing scheduled there with a couple of stops in, in New Britain and Pawtucket that might be pretty interesting for you. Yeah, that's the fifth of my five itineraries that I've put together. Um, it's funny, being based in New York City, you'd think that'd be a fairly easy region to get to, but for some reason I think psychologically it's easier for me to really <laughs> disconnect myself from the Northeast in general. And last year I ended with a trip uh, all the way mostly in New York State, and this is kind of following up on that and hitting New England. Uh, there'll be the final game in New Britain Rockcats history, most likely, as they will relocate not far away to uh, Hartford next season. Um, obviously, there's a lot of drama in Pawtucket. This is not going to be their last season for the Pawtucket Red Sox, but obviously there are there's a situation in place for them to move within the next several seasons, most likely to Providence. So I'm glad to be able to you know, report from Pawtucket as well. And really what i found through the years is that every ballpark is worth visiting. And I take offense sometimes when I tell people where I'm going and they're like, why are you going to go to you know, this city? And my point is, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you go to all these places? It's fun, and it gives you the context to visit them. 
and uh, that's why I think people should really consider doing their own minor league road trips because it puts you in all these places you probably wouldn't go otherwise and once you're there you have baseball and then you have a city to explore. Is, is there one place that jumps to mind that kind of fills that uh, sort of qualifies within that as being a place you might not visit except for the minor league park is, is a cool thing to see? Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, I think one that really stood out for me last year was the Canapolis Intimidators. Hmm. I mean the Canapolis area is basically slowly being swallowed whole by greater metropolitan Charlotte. So I didn't really think much about what is Canapolis, what's a game like there. And it was a kind of unremarkable stadium, 20-some years old, but there was just a, a personality there. Um, you know, I met the uh-huh guy who uh, hangs out on the concourse and uh, scrambles for foul balls, even though he's probably in his 50s or 60s, <laughs> and uh, you know, screams his uh-huh catchphrase everywhere. I met some amateur wrestlers who were also on the concourse, kind of telling me how, how they did what they do. You know, you could get a... Uh, was amateur wrestlers involved in the game operations? No, they were just there. there. They were just <laughs> there. That's, that's kind of what I love. Like you just sometimes you enter these really strange worlds with strange people. Um, you know who is it? Who are at a minor league baseball game on a Tuesday night? And uh, I kind of like that aspect. I love the big promos. I love sold out ballparks. But I kind of like going to Canapolis on a Tuesday night after a rain delay and hanging out with some kind of strange people for a couple hours. And I think that's one of my favorite parts of the job as well. Not just the biggest and the brightest, but going off the beaten path a little bit. All right. Uh, well, great. Well, Ben, we're looking forward to talking to you about all those things as, uh, as we go through the season. Uh, you want to let the people know where they can find you on, on Twitter and, and online so, to read your stuff? Yeah, I definitely want the people to know that I can be found on Twitter at, at Ben'sBiz, B-E-N-S-B-I-Z. And, uh, of course, I'm always writing for MILB.com and my blog, Ben's Biz blog. I mean, Google it, Ben's Biz, but Ben'sBiz.MLBlogs.com. <laughs> in case Google's not working for you. I'll be writing about the culture of minor league baseball all season long. And he'll be on the podcast for uh, most of the season doing that as well, talking to us about uh, what he sees and, and what's going on with promotions and, and things at the ballpark. Uh, ben, appreciate you joining us, and looking forward to talking to you more this summer. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And next time I'm on, let's uh, get some jokes and some puns, some wordplay. <laughs> That's, uh, ben, ben claims to be the pun expert of, of MILB.com. I'm, work, I'm working on it. So I just uh, <laughs> gained some listeners. I want people to battle me on Twitter and uh, you know, throw some puns yes, at feel, me on feel the podcast. Free. Feel free to throw your best puns, Ben's way. Yeah, yeah. All right. We'll, we'll be busy. <laughs> All right, thanks, Ben. Big thanks to our pal Benjamin Hill, uh, who's going to be on the road all season long, as it, I'm sure it feels to Ben. Ben does some of the best. Like, even before I started working in the minors, I read Ben's stuff because Ben's stuff is so, so entertaining. So go uh, check out Ben's stuff on MILB.com. Check him out on the blog. And uh, we got a ton coming up this week. This is like the craziest week for all of us, rider-wise, because we've got – prospect primers league previews under the radar prospects all kinds of stuff uh coming up over the next man, nine days now until opening day jake give us an idea what's coming up on the site this week yeah we got so we got the rest of the prospect primers will roll out by the end of the week um of the finishing up with the al east and the nl east on thursday and friday um so probably by the time you're reading this most of those will be out and um, certainly think it's a, a good way to to catch up on, on what to look for for your system this week next week we're going to have uh, league previews um, for if you're especially good if you're located near a, a certain minor league team and want to know which players to look for coming through your city, things like that. Um, we're going to do a feature on some under-the-radar radar prospects that, that our staff has identified. Um, something I know fans definitely enjoy. We're going to have our guide to opening day, um, which is a, a good sort of breakdown on what to look for on opening day and how to best uh, enjoy the minor league experience when it first starts up. And, and we'll also have... Uh, Ben's promo preview, which is always one of the uh, the big hits on the site, um, just looking at the best uh, minor league promotions coming up this year, and also something on the the pitch clocks that are coming to Double A AA and Triple A. So that's all all coming next week. So we're uh, we're busy folks uh, this time of year, and then uh, after that there will be baseball. Finally, finally, it feels like it has been so long since we have dealt with real baseball, but that's going to be the best. Uh, it's going to be the best part of this week is the end of it when people are uh, finally playing real baseball. Uh, you can follow all of us, basically everybody you have heard today, on the old Twitter machine. First, you can follow at MILB, Minor League Baseball, at MILB, at MILB, uh, for all of your Minor League Baseball wants and needs. Jake is on Twitter at Jake underscore Siner, S-E-I-N-E-R. 
I am on Twitter at Tyler Mon. My last name is M A U N. Uh, and yeah, tweet us your questions, thoughts, comments, concerns. We'll uh, we'll do our best to delve into them as the season goes along. And uh, we're excited for this because not only is baseball coming up after all those features, but more of MILB's the show before the show. We're going to be with you all season long and uh, and have some fun with this. So, Jake, maiden voyage is all wrapped up. Get pumped. We have, we have survived. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in, and uh, we'll talk to you next time on MILB's The Show Before the Show. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.